0: Hey, everybody, you are tuned to Deep Dive, the All Music Books podcast, where we turn music book authors loose. Today we're speaking with Justin Martel, the author of Eternal Troubadour, The Improbable Life of Tiny Tim. He co-wrote the book with Alana Ray McDonald. Thanks for joining us, Justin.
1: That's my very great pleasure.
0: So, Justin, the title of your book is The Eternal Troubadour, and that's a nickname which was bestowed upon Tiny by some of his fans. Is that right?
1: Um, I guess you could say was a fan. I mean, Martin Sharp bestowed that nickname upon Tiny, and Martin Sharp, I think, was a fan first and foremost. For those who don't know who he was, he was a very famous Australian pop artist uh, who saw Tiny live at the Royal Albert Hall in 1968 and became obsessed with him. Later in the 70s, when uh, Tiny's popularity in America started to wane, Tiny became more accessible. They got the opportunity to work together, and Martin Sharp produced a lot of Tiny's later concerts and record albums. And the Eternal Troubadour is, is not the only nickname that Martin gave to Tiny. Uh, I think some of the other nicknames include the Superman of Song, America's Ambassador of Song, and the Human Bird. Wow.
0: A lot of names. And the Chicago Tribune uh, observed in 1969, as you point out in your book, that Tiny Tim misses no nuances of time, the century, the mood of the locale, and he's a medium, a haunted house. What do you figure that means?
1: So I believe what the author meant by that statement was that if you look at that period of time in music, you have a lot of artists who were doing songs that were, uh, you know, nostalgia songs, songs that were written sort of in the spirit of old music hall Songs, you know, for the Beatles, you have Your Mother Should Know and uh, Honey Pie. And then, of course, there's like the new vaudeville band, Winchester Cathedral, Love and Spoonful, Daydream. Find, you know, dozens, dozens of more examples. But when, when those bands were doing an imitation of a style, Tiny, when you listen to him sing, was able to actually you know recreate the sounds of that period of time of the, of the cylinder record of the 1890s and the 1910s with such frightening accuracy that you could almost hear the scratch and the fidelity of the seventy eight within his warble. I mean, you listen to his voice and that voice is not of this earth. Uh what is coming out of him, you know, is that vibrato. Uh there's no other singer that sings like that. You don't hear that in, in any other singer's voice. And what that is, is it's him creating the 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 warble and the almost the warp and the scratch Of the 78 i believe that that's what that writer meant was that he was literally haunted by spirits of singers from the past
0: well it's a great and accurate quote and your definition of that is even better so tiny tim is doing his thing he's playing dive bars and lesbian cabarets in the village and he lands a recording contract with frank sinatra's reprise label that in itself is pretty amazing but that album god bless tiny tim is now considered a classic Of course, it also gave us the legendary earworm, Tiptoe Through the Tulips.
1: I think it's now sort of being rediscovered. It it was uh, actually just reissued on colored vinyl this year for the 50th anniversary. And I think that people are sort of rediscovering it, especially as we're starting to get into a period of time where people are talking about gender roles and everything. So I think that Tiny Tim, of course, is part of that conversation. And that's probably a big reason for the rediscovery of the album. It's kind of one of those strange things that when the, you know, when the album came out, so, of course, he was signed by Warner Brothers, which was a major label at the time. He was on the Frank Sinatra subsidiary reprise records. He was being produced by Richard Perry, who had just produced Safe as Milk for Captain Beefheart and who would soon become one of the most in-demand record producers in the industry, if not of all time. And Richard Perry, as a producer, you know, he had known Tiny since uh, Tiny performed in the Greenwich Village. They had actually made some early recordings together. And I think that Richard Perry is one of the few producers who was able to properly realize Tiny's point. And Tiny's view on music was that, was that a great song was a great song no matter when it was written. So it didn't matter if the song was written in 1918 or 1968 that a song could be great regardless. And that's why he made it a point to bring back those old songs. Because he said, it doesn't matter that I'm singing this song from 1902 and 1968. It's still a great song. So I believe that through Richard Perry's production, he was able to take, you know, you look at, uh, ever since you told me that you love me, I'm a nut. Uh, that's a song, I believe, from 1905. I tend to be corrected on some of these dates. But that song sounds like it could have been written in 1968. You take Stay Down Here Where You Belong, which was an anti-World War I song sung by Henry Byrd in 1916. That sounds like, uh, you know, it's, it's got like a Doors-esque treatment and it sounds like it was written then as a protest song for Vietnam. That's one of the main reasons is that Richard Perry is able to, through his bringing in some of the newer songs, such as Fill Your Heart by Paul Williams, combining them with Tiny's old repertoire and finding a way to make them all modern and current, and it was just produced in a way that just hit the groove at that time. And as Richard Perry himself said, that, that a lot of people didn't think that Tiny Tim could make an album at all, let alone make an album that at that time were, received four- and five-star reviews across the board. It was revered by the rock intelligentsia. You had the Beatles talking about it. Eric Clapton listened to it, and he told Martin Sharp you got to go see this guy at Royal Albert Hall. Mickey Dolenz from the Monkees called Tiny Tim the most important artist that that the world had seen in a decade. And he followed up on that statement and he said, I'm not fooling anybody when I say that. The New York Times compared it to Sgt. Pepper's. For some reason, as Tiny Tim became more popular and familiar to the public, that magic was sort of forgotten. And I think it was forgotten for many years, many decades, actually. But I think it's starting to come back. I think that people are starting to rediscover that album and the the magic of that album in a big way. In my opinion, it should be regarded as one of the top albums of the 60s. It should be right there with the White Album and Are You Experienced and Velvet Underground and Nico.
0: That is high praise indeed. You know, I wonder if also some of that anachronistic thing of is, is this new or old didn't confuse his audience at the time, the people who weren't the rock intelligentsia. So, you know, the success of that album led to appearances on Laughing and Johnny Carson's Tonight Show. I remember growing up, you literally couldn't turn on the TV without seeing Tiny performing. In fact, in your book, you quote a gentleman who booked the Carson show and he famously prepared a briefing and he said, he is for real. What did the rest of that memo say?
1: I think it said something to the effect of Tiny Tim is for real, and he will talk to you uh, on a great number of topics from soap to alien.
0: That's that's a wide-ranging conversation there. (laughs)
1: Yeah.
0: Uh, You know, in the end, uh, you had mentioned it, TV probably wasn't the ideal medium Mm -hmm. for Tiny Tim. You know, you once said, sadly, his fickle nature relegated him to the butt of a joke, a guest who overstayed his welcome the morning after the party that was the 1960s. What happened?
1: Well, I think oversaturation is what happened. I, I think it's one of those things where Tiny was not really able to break into the entertainment scene in a way so that people could properly understand his genius. So I think that to understand Tiny Tim requires a lot of context. I think that, you know, you, you watch him on Laugh-In, and while he's an entertaining oddity, to be uh, gawked at or uh, or amused by, could have two reactions. You know, it's like, oh, well, isn't that fun? And, uh, okay, well, that you know, that's the end of that. So I don't think he was necessarily given the chance in terms of, you know, performing on The Tonight Show or performing on Laugh-In early on to display the breadth of his musical knowledge and his abilities as a performer. I mean, he was, obviously, if you do go back and watch all of Tiny's, TV appearances, he of course did do quite a bit of performing in his normal voice, and he did perform, you know, his his great rendition of Great Balls of Fire many times on TV. But I, I don't know. I just don't know that audiences that the way he was portrayed and, and the way hosts treated him uh, as a curiosity rather than um, a serious artist. I think that that might have been damaging uh, in terms of his uh, the longevity of his of his career, his mainstream career.
0: It's amazing, because one of the things I did learn from your book, he had some serious musical connections. And let me just ask you about a couple of them, if you got a a sentence or two, you know, a pretty impressive list. You know, starting with Steve Paul and his legendary New York club, The Scene. What was their connection there?
1: Well, their connection was that Tiny, for years, wandered uh, Greenwich Village nightclub circuit, and then finally made his way up to Steve Paul's discotheque. And he auditioned. He had just started uh, getting some popularity under under the name Tiny Tim. Uh, Steve Paul put him on the bill as the opening act pretty much uh, every night. If you look at ads for the scene during that period of time, see the amazing Tiny Tim, 365 days a year. Uh, Tiny was basically the in-house entertainment at Steve Paul. So while he was there, he opened for Jimi Hendrix and the doors. And uh, Tiny said that... Um, Uh, (laughs) that Jim Morrison offered him the song People Are Strange, which, of course, Tiny Later recorded in an outtake for the second album. Oh, my God.
0: Those are some legendary double bills there. He was also scheduled to appear at the Monterey Pop Festival, but I think the head guy there took one look at him and said, nope.
1: Yeah, Steve Paul brought him all the way out there, and he was going to perform. He was all set to do it. <laughs> they said, no way. So he ended up performing in the Hunt Club, which was basically the green room for the Monterey Pop Festival. And there's now some very famous footage filmed by D.A. Pennebaker of Tiny performing there.
0: But he did make it to the legendary Isle of Wight show, correct?
1: Yes. So then that, of course, comes much later. So Tiny headlined with uh, the Doors and Jimi Hendrix and uh, Donovan, Joni Mitchell, I think he followed Joni Mitchell at the Isle of Wight Festival in England in 1970. And um, it's pretty amazing. You know, there was a lot of people wondering at the time, what was Tiny Tim doing at a rock festival? And then I think all the papers said that Tiny Tim stole the show and he did it without a single electric instrument, except for his electric megaphone, that is. There's sort of a famous moment during the concert where he started belting out a rendition of There Will Always Be in England as a, a hot air balloon with the Union Jack on it. Uh, it sort of rose up above the crowd and above the stage. If you go on and... There are a lot of websites dedicated to people sharing their memories of the Isle of Wight Festival, and there are a bunch of people who wrote their memories of Tiny Set from that show. And, of course, parts of it were featured in the documentary Message to Love, uh, the Isle of Wight Festival 1970, directed by Murray Lerner.
0: You know, that's just one of the many, many things I learned in your book.
2: Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds.
0: We're talking with Justin Martel, who's the author of Eternal Troubadour, The Improbable Life of Tiny Tim. So Tiny's sexuality was always a big deal. But in fact, he was mostly repressed by conservatism and some strange religious beliefs, right?
1: Yes. I think that Tiny's third wife, Sue, summed things up most accurately when she said that Tiny's sexual confusion may have had more to do with identity that he was very effeminate that he you know he felt more comfortable with long hair wearing makeup he felt more comfortable in, in the company of women that that maybe made him question his sexuality other than a very sort of romanticized friendship that he had with one of his friends while growing up tiny was with women for the rest of his life and I don't think it was necessarily to cover up for, for him being secretly gay. I, I, in all my research and interviews, and I've read now over 20 of his diaries, I never really got anything that, that indicated that he was a homosexual.
0: Yeah, your book is deeply researched, and I would agree, in the end, Heine was quite the ladies' man. Most people probably remember Miss Vicky, when he famously married her on The Tonight Show. But there was also fifteen-year-old Miss Jan, whom he proposed to. There is Miss Karen, who was a Double Day employee he met on his book tour. There is Miss Trisha. There is Miss Carol, and there is Miss Cleo. So,
1: well, yeah, and there are the two other wives: Miss Jan, the wife, and Miss Sue, the, who ended up being the widow. Yeah.
0: One of the things that I found really hysterical in your book: Tiny made a marriage pitch to Miss Vicky's reluctant parents, and it's hilariously recounted in your book. I'm not sure if you can quite tell it all here, but. It couldn't have quieted her parents' fears.
1: If I recall correctly, they had a series of meetings during Tiny's engagement at the Steel Pier in Atlantic City in August of 1969, just two months after he had met Miss Vicki uh, at a book signing of his on June third, nineteen 1969. And I think he told them straight up that he was very difficult to live with and that they may question his intentions because he was a celebrity, and that he would not marry her without their permission. But off the top of my head, I, I don't, and I just, I remember just, it's sort of an awkward, you know, an awkward thing. You have a 37-year-old, you know, unlikely eccentric pop star uh, speaking to the parents of a 17-year-old New Jersey girl about the possibility of them getting married only two months after meeting each other. but The whole scene is kind of bizarre.
0: So in 1996, uh, Tiny Tim has a heart attack on stage. They asked him if he was okay, and he famously said what?
1: So Tiny had two heart attacks. The first one was in September of 1966 at the Ukulele Expo in Massachusetts, and he had not been feeling that, that well uh, that day. And he got up on stage during the band introduction, just did a total face plant off the stage. The, in fact, the footage is quite shocking to watch. <laughs> At a certain point, uh, when the medics arrived, there was all this commotion around him, and then they, said, they were asking him questions to see how conscious he was. And they were saying, you know, what's your name? And And then they said, how old are you, sir? And then the whole room went quiet because he was always very reluctant to give his age. And he quietly said, oh, near a 64. And that's when everybody (laughs) knew that he was okay. Then he was told by the doctors essentially at that point to stop performing. Mm. And there were sort of two camps. People were divided. There were those who thought that he should stop performing. And then there were the others who sided with him, which is that if he couldn't perform, he was dead anyway. So after only a little bit of rest, he continued to perform, and that ultimately led to the fatal uh, performance on November 30th, 1996, when he played a benefit concert for the uh, Women's Club of Minneapolis. And he played a short set, played tiptoe, which he cut short and sort of froze. And when his wife ran up to him and took his arm, she said, "Are, Are you okay? And he said, No, I'm not. And at that moment, he just collapsed and fell to the floor and passed away Wow
0: A lot of musicians say when I go I'd like to go on stage right and that's a very sad but maybe a fitting end to one of you know popular music's stranger stories you know a guy who as you said was a bit of a medium from a time long ago Uh, what do you consider Tiny Tim's legacy his lasting story
1: Well I think that Tiny Tim. Totally redefined what a singer could be, what a, what a performer could be. I think that he was one of the first to sort of fuse an entertainer with uh, being a serious singer. And if certainly one of the first singers completely without precedent. If you look at singers since Tiny Tim, you know, you have Kiss and uh, Alice Cooper and Boy George, Rob Zombie, Marilyn Manson, Lady Gaga. You know, they all have a precedent. And if you trace it all back, that precedent is Tiny Tim. And before that, there is no precedent. And in no doubt, uh, other artists like David Bowie and, and certainly uh, took aspects of Tiny Tim's performance and um, performing style. So I think that he was a trailblazer in that way and uh, in a way that he does not get credit for. Just in terms of performance art and as a performance artist. I mean, there are elements of Tiny Tim that are almost even punk rock. It's funny, you know. Some of the, the crossover and, and fandom, you wouldn't believe how many Gigi Allen fans are also Tiny Tim fans. It, it does make sense because Tiny Tim is kind of like a forebearer of punk rock, you know when in, in a period of time where you know, there was a lot of effort to conform, especially to gender roles. And I don't want to get too deep into that, but in it's like, but where you know this is what a man is. And when in a time when everyone's telling you this is what a man is, well, what do you do? You, you become a Tiny Tim. But in this very gentle, gentlemanly, polite, nice way that's all very charming and sort of um, disarming at the same time. That's one aspect of it, is Tiny Tim, the performance artist. And I think that that's something that's not really... You know, a lot of people, will, you know, be oh, it's fun. They'll watch a Tiny Tim video on YouTube and laugh at it. But no, that he was totally a trailblazer in that respect. So that's one. Number two is just Tiny Tim, the music historian, that he knew all, hundreds, of, you know, possibly thousands of old songs in a time before Wikipedia, that they all lived within him, and that he was a walking storehouse of of all that turn of the century music. There could have possibly been songs that died with him, um, that just aren't around anymore. That's the name, that's Eternal Troubadour. I mean, that's what a, a Troubadour you know, was, was that they were the carriers of these songs and that they were supposed to pass them on to other Troubadours. If they died, the songs died with them. And that, those are the aspects of Tiny Tim's legacy. I just so To me, Tiny Tim is a serious artist. I'm really glad that as time goes on, more and more younger people are getting into him. Uh, his legacy is being re-examined. His catalog is being re-released. Previously, unreleased recordings are being released. I've been involved with quite a few of those. And um, it's great to see sort of just a, a shift in the view that he's sort of now being seen as a serious artist rather than just a disgusting oddity from the past, you know.
0: Well, Howard Stern in your book called him phenomenal. Carson said he was one of the most ingenious persons he has ever known. I mean, he
1: was one of the only people to, you know, stump Carson. Carson was totally at a loss for words if you watch Tiny's first appearance on The Tonight Show. And obviously, Carson was famously quick on his feet. (laughs) It took took Carson a couple seconds to recover when Tiny Tim sat down in the guest chair
0: there, well, I'd tell all of our listeners to go back and find that piece of footage. I would also tell them to read your book. It was a fascinating book. I really, really enjoyed it. I learned a lot about it. Definitely gave me a new appreciation for who Tiny Tim was. So I'd like to thank you, Justin, for coming on and, uh, and giving us the you know, lowdown on Tiny Tim.
1: No, thank you for having me.
0: I'd like to thank our guest. Justin Martel, author of Eternal Troubadour, The Improbable Life of Tiny Tim. If you'd like to find out more about his book, please visit allmusicbooks.com and you can buy it through our site. We'd appreciate it, and so would Justin. You can also check out the rest of our deep dive episodes there. I'd like to thank our engineer extraordinaire, Steve Folsom, who can be found at www.fullsound.com. Finally, a big shout-out to Frankie and the Pool Boys for their one-of-a-kind music played throughout the podcast. You can check them out at frankieandthepoolboys.bandcamp.com and on all the major streaming services. Please support local and independent musicians and writers. We're out until the next time, and thanks again for tuning in to Deep Dive and All Music Books Podcast.